You are watching the most valuable player in the NBA, Buffalo's Bob McAdoo. Tonight, McAdoo challenges Washington. Elvin Hayes, the Big E, has scored 60 points in the last two playoff games as the Bullets have opened up a 2-1 edge on the Braves. Randy Smith is Buffalo's Greyhound. His legs make Jack Ramsey's fast break so lethal. When Smith got into foul trouble early in the last game, the Braves' attack sputtered and finally died altogether. Phil Chenier is Washington's little girl with the curls. When he's good, he's fantastic. When he's bad, he can't put the basketball in the ocean. Last time out, he was very, very good. You see the best in basketball when you watch the NBA. When you watch the NBA on Welcome to the Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo and Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Semi-Final Series between the Buffalo Braves and the Washington Bullets. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brent Musburger, along with Oscar Robertson. And, Oscar, whenever we come to Buffalo, we've got to start with a big guy off the top, Bob McAdoo. What a series he's had so far. Yes, he is, Brent. He's averaging around 35 points a game right now. And I was talking to Coach Jones before the game. He's going to try something new this game. He's going to try four different players on McAdoo during the ball game. Ansel, who can be very physical, the top right on your screen, if he wants can do the best physical job, I should say. I think Elvin Hayes could probably do the best all-round job against him as the game progresses. But tonight, he said Reardon will start on because of his speed. He can probably overplay McAdoo and probably force him in in a situation like this. McAdoo drives to the basket, gets his own rebounds. Test of a good basketball player that he is. Witherspoon will get a shot at him if either Ansel or Hayes gets into foul trouble. Oscar, I've got a hunch that we are in for the best game of this series so far. I think so. I think any time you get to a game like this, why Coach Jones is going to start rearing on McAdoo. He wants to save his big guys for leading the game. He wants them as fresh as possible. Okay. Yesterday, Jack Ramsey had a meeting with the Buffalo Braves. Closed doors. It lasted 35 minutes. He says his team played poorly, but they will not play poorly tonight in game four. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, everyone. How uh, are you doing? I uh, appreciate your uh, finding us in uh, in the vast and wild and wacky world of podcasts, and uh, we appreciate your uh, selecting us uh, to uh, entertain you, hopefully, for a little while uh, in the uh in the vast thicket that uh, of choices that you have out there in podcast land. My name is Tim Hanlon, and I am the uh, chief cook and bottle washer for this little show we call Good Seats Still Available. It's our curious little journey each and every week uh, into what used to be in professional sports and uh, teams and leagues uh, no longer with us or, in uh, uh, many cases, uh, previously incarnated uh, versions. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the uh, excuse that we've got uh, this week, as we uh, dribble our way back to finally basketball, obviously the uh, college uh, uh, NCAA season underway. The NBA been underway for a couple of weeks now, and uh, it's uh, it's been our uh, uh, our uh, issue in not uh, sort of delving more into basketball over the last couple of weeks and months. So we're we're going to rectify that this week uh, with our uh, guest Tim Wendell, uh, and we're going to be talking about. Uh, as you heard alluded to by Brent Mus Musburger and his uh, CBS broadcast uh, partners there, 
the NBA uh, and the team known as the Buffalo Braves uh, that uh, now, uh, if you're an L.A. Clippers fan, uh, you should uh, pay special attention to uh, in that the uh, origin of the Clippers, uh, first San Diego, but uh, before even San Diego started uh, in the early 1970s in Buffalo, New York, of all places, uh, when they were known as an expansion franchise as the Buffalo Braves. And uh, that game uh, that you heard uh, there as a lead up was a playoff game, one of the very few that the Braves actually uh, got to partake in. But it, uh, circa 1975, uh, in particular, April 18th, 1975, they were uh, the Braves were locked in a uh, an early round battle with the Washington Bullets. Uh, and uh, that game ended, by the way, the Braves winning at home 108 to 102 to send it to a fifth and deciding game uh, a couple of days later, which uh, the Bullets wound up winning. But uh, you uh, heard uh, in that clip with uh, uh, with Brent and uh, Oscar Robertson, the um, uh, allusion to uh, the uh, the the masterful play of one Bob McAdoo, who that season, 1975, 74, 75, uh, was the league's most valuable player. And. Uh, there was a hot time going on there in Buffalo for a number of years, and we're going to get into it uh, with our guest, Tim Wendell. He, the author uh, of a very uh, cool, I, I guess you could call it coffee table book, but it's its more than that because it's not just photography. It's got some great uh, content in there and some great memories from a number of the people and players and administrators uh, involved with the Buffalo Braves franchise. The book is called Buffalo, Home of the Braves. Uh, you will find a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, as you'll hear in our chat, uh, it's uh, it's basically out of print, but uh, maybe uh, we can get a little bit more love for uh, this team and uh, this book uh, by perhaps a reissue, uh, as we talk about with Tim in our, in our chat. Uh, but it's a very interesting story. Uh, the NBA, of course, in the 70s uh, was a little wobbly. Uh, you had the ABA challenge going on, certainly. You had a number of teams in the NBA that were, uh, and the ABA for that matter, not making money. Uh, the uh, approach to uh, television was a little spotty. Uh, yeah, you heard a, a clip there from CBS, but uh, you know there were a number of playoff games, for example, that uh, were broadcast in tape delay fashion uh, after even your late local news. Uh, it was not nearly the wall-to-wall uh, intensity that uh, we enjoy today as NBA basketball fans. But you know, in Buffalo, not necessarily the most obvious place. Uh, for a uh, an NBA uh, expansion franchise in uh, 1970. Um, but as you'll hear in our chat with Tim, you know, Buffalo and the Western New York area was, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, was uh, quite uh, more populated and certainly uh, more booming business-wise uh, than it is uh, sort of known as today. You had the Buffalo Bills, of course, uh, uh, moving from the AFL and quite successfully into the NFL. Uh, and uh, in uh, the uh, 1970 season, uh, it was an interesting uh, uh, chain of events there that not only the uh, Braves of the NBA were uh, expanded uh, with and into, but also the Buffalo Sabres of the uh, NHL uh, came into the, their league at that point as well. So, you know, almost overnight, Buffalo was, uh, you know, went from one uh, major uh, pro f- uh, sports franchise in the NFL Bills to having three uh, and the two winter ones at that in the uh, in hockey and in basketball. But basketball is what we're going to be talking about, and the Braves in particular, and some very interesting nuances. There was, uh, you know, some some early day struggles, no doubt. Uh, a couple of years in between, in the middle there, that uh, the Braves were uh, quite hot uh, with some great talent. Bob McAdoo, uh, prime among them, but uh, Ernie DiGregorio and, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, 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 you know, Dr. Jack Ramsey, who went up to uh, 
uh, some amazing things. Uh, there's a lot of interesting players uh, and coaches and, and administrators that sort of came through Buffalo. And uh, for a little white hot moment or two there, the Buffalo Braves were quite the thing, not only in Buffalo, but in the NBA as well. Uh, we get into uh, sort of all of that. And of course, their decline uh, and uh, sort of the ham handed decline, I guess, of that team that ultimately led to uh, an, an curious uh, manner by which uh, they ultimately became and uh, moved to San Diego to become uh, the Clippers. And uh, some would even argue that, um, you know, a little bit of the uh, uh, the bad luck, I guess, uh, as uh, the last couple of years of the Braves kind of uh, followed them uh, to San Diego. The Clippers uh, became uh, quite the doormat for, for a number of years and then obviously into L.A. And, you know, clearly on the uh, on the rebound, no pun intended, uh, with uh, Steve Ballmer and friends now as the number two tenant, maybe uh, their own uh, arena at some point uh, in Los Angeles as the L.A. version of the Clippers. But we start and go back to 1970 uh, with the expansion Buffalo Braves of the NBA. That's our chat today uh, with Tim Wendell uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, We want to remind you that we've got a whole host of great sponsors that uh, I believe you're actually going to find some Buffalo Braves stuff. So if you're really into this episode and this team, uh, and or Buffalo in general, I think you're going to find uh, some very cool stuff from all of our sponsors this week. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you giving them a chance to uh, to be perhaps uh, uh, consider and then hopefully purchase a couple of their wares. Uh, one place you could start is 503 Sports, 503-sports.com. Uh, they call themselves the king of throwbacks, and uh, uh, they're relatively uh, new onto the scene. They're, uh, they're based in uh, beautiful Portland, Oregon. And uh, you're going to find some great uh, logo wear and T-shirts there, but also some very uh, lovingly crafted uh, uniforms uh, and uh, small sort of uh, custom batches, uh, especially in football. But I I know they've got other things up their sleeve uh, for uh, other uh, expansion into uh, other sports and and whatnot. So give them a try. Give them a view. Give them a a visit. Why don't you at 503 Sports? That's 503-sports.com and use the promo code SEATS. Make sure you get 10% off all of your purchases there. Uh, As we've talked about in previous episodes, if you're a football fan, uh, especially of some leagues that uh, uh, sort of came and went, uh, the XFL, the the first version of such, of course, uh, the WFL, the World League of American Football, hell, the USFL for that matter, uh, all of those leagues have some uh, very cool uh, limited edition uh, handcrafted jerseys that uh, you will amaze and impress your friends with. Uh, among other things, uh, check them out at uh, 503 Sports. It's 503 or hyphen sports.com. Promo code SEATS, uh, and you're going to get 10% off your purchases there. And uh, keep a tabs on them as they uh, look into other sports and other uh, teams to, uh, to issue stuff. I think you're going to find them very, very interesting. I know you will find sportshistorycollectibles.com interesting uh, because you're going to probably find a bunch of uh, Buffalo Braves uh, memorabilia there, as well as memorabilia from other teams and leagues no longer with us or uh, and or previously incarnated at sportshistorycollectibles.com. You can, of course, use a promo code there, good seats, and you're going to get 15% all of your purchases there. That's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use that promo code good seats and get 15% off, you know, things like uh, buttons and media guides and uh, pennants and programs and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Lots of, you know, season ticket brochures, all kinds of very cool, very hard to find things and uh, all part of the, uh, the rich tableau of forgotten sports history that we like to to revel in on this little show. And again, you're going to get 15% off when you use the promo code GOODSEATS, again, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Last but not least, please, by all means, 
uh, venture over to oldschoolshirts.com. Uh, and uh, you're going to enjoy uh, the highest quality T-shirts I think you're going to find in the realm of sort of forgotten sports logos and teams and names and all that kind of stuff. And it's not just sports, by the way. It's also uh, legacy or legendary radio stations of yore or uh, amusement parks or malls and those kinds of things. These are all sort of pop culture type memories uh, that you're going to find sports, of, of course, included at oldschoolshirts.com and make sure you use the promo code there once you find, and it's just a matter of time to find one that you're going to enjoy, uh, a shirt that you love and can't live without. Use that promo code GOODSEATS there at oldschoolshirts.com and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there on us. And please, by all means, visit there early and often, as we'd like to say, oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for your 10% discount on all of your purchases. And again, with all of our sponsors, we... Uh, not only say thank you, but we also appreciate you giving them a chance and a listen, a listen, no, a try. Go, you you know, point your browser over there and for God's sakes, make a purchase or two. Why don't you keep us, uh, keep us going, give us a few shekels of love. And uh, we'd appreciate that because we've got so many great stories to share with you in the weeks and months to come. And uh, we want to make sure we continue to be able to publish them uh, with the high quality that uh, we've been striving to do for the last year and a half uh, going forward. Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's move that banter promotionally uh, to the side and let us now move into a, a very fun conversation uh, with the author of Buffalo, Home of the Braves. His name is Tim Wendell, sports writer extraordinaire. And uh, we're going to get into it. The Buffalo Braves of the NBA, 1970s NBA basketball coming at you. Buffalo Braves, we haven't really talked about uh this interesting story, and um, perhaps uh, you can uh, give our audience a bit of a sense before we get into it, um, how you uh, decided to uh, create this uh, uh, this tome about the uh, uh, the Buffalo Braves, only what, uh, a handful of years in the 70s. Um, what's your story? Well, I, I used to go to, um, Tim, I used to go to Buffalo Braves games. I was in college at that point at Syracuse, and used to go back to the Buffalo area and see the Sabres and see the Braves and see the Bills, et cetera. And um, it's funny because a good friend of mine, John Murphy, is now voice of the Bills. Uh, we would sometimes even carpool back to see Braves games. That's how much we were both into the Braves. He was maybe hardly into them even more than I was at that point in time. So I had, you know, kind of the remembrances of them. And then to go back and do uh, the book, Buffalo Home of the Braves, you start peeling back the layers. And what kind of reveals itself is a number of things. The team was really, really good. Uh, it had, what, three rookies of the year with Bob McAdoo, Ernie DiGregorio, Adrian Bantley. You had a future Hall of Fame coach and Jack Ramsey, who will win the championship the year after he's ousted as the coach of the Braves. They're only around for about eight years, but their style of play, everybody being able to score a uh, very high-paced uh, high game was really kind of a harbinger of kind of the way the league was going to become. And unfortunately, the Braves um, disappear um, among one of the most bizarre, I think, we pretty much one franchise traded for another. The Braves are traded for the Celtics. And then I guess the new Braves go West to become the Clippers. And, um, and it was, uh, it's too bad. They weren't able to stick around because their style of play was a harbinger of things to come. And I think they would have fit in even better 
with the way the league was changing. And since the Braves disappear, roughly as Larry Bird, Magic Johnson are about ready to enter the league and things are going to change so much in style of play, but also in terms of the respect that the league got. And uh, that's why it's kind of a bittersweet story a little bit. So I, I take it that you were a fan at a younger age uh, and, and went to games. Did you, were you there from the very beginning when they uh, were founded in 1970, their first season in the NBA? I don't think I was there maybe the first season, but um, certainly by the second, third season, I, I had attended some games because it was, it was easy to do. Uh, you know, tickets were always available, unlike the, the Buffalo Sabres, um, where the only way we could get in is my dad ended up having to get season tickets way up in the orange balcony seats um, because the Sabres just kind of took off. And what was very curious about the Braves, Tim, was their first couple of years, <laughs> very good, what were they, 22-60, you know, records like that. And then things changed, and they changed in a real hurry. One was the addition of Jack Ramsey coming in as coach. And I'll never forget interviewing Dr. Jack. And I, I tend to think the mark of a good coach is certainly somebody who's got a system and they've got some fundamentals that they believe in and a philosophy of coaching. But I think the really good coaches that I have a lot of respect for, and you know, I've, I've been a sports writer now for more than 30 years, are the ones that will take their talent and what's made available to them and change accordingly. And um, Dr. Jack is a guy who really believes in centers. And you see the success he had certainly with Bill Walton later on out in Portland and uh, Maurice Lucas and et cetera, made such a great front line. They didn't really have a center. And so in a sense, they had to move Bob McAdoo, who had come into the league, um, the Braves outbid the ABA for him, and he was pretty much going to be a forward. But uh, they moved him to the center, and he wins uh, the scoring championship three straight seasons. And, uh, it, and I think if, well, he pretty much told me so in some of the interviews, I think if Jack Ramsey had, um, he, it could go in the direction he would want to go or would have been with a stronger front line maybe not playing as fast as they played, uh, maybe not playing as much run and gun as they did. But to his credit, he saw the talent he had with McAdoo. Later on, um, Adrian Dantley comes in. Unfortunately, Jack Ramsey's gone by then. But the backcourt of Randy Smith, Ernie DiGregorio, Jack Marin, Gar Hurd. I mean, what a team. And so you're kind of going, we can score. Let's see if we can outscore the rest of the league. And they came very close to doing it. They often ran into the buzzsaw of the Boston Celtics. I mean, one year they were ousted by the uh, Washington slash Baltimore Bullets. And they always were in the equation. Unfortunately, they just couldn't get over in their short existence in Buffalo over the hump and really win a championship. So it it almost feels though, uh, and again, you were there. I I was not, but it, um, having grown up in the New York metropolitan area and sort of a follower of the the New Jersey Nets at the time, the and the uh, and the Knicks, of course, and you know the Braves would sort of waft in and out of not only town but also consciousness. Um, the uh, it seemed though that um, they were kind of I don't want to say ill fated at the start, but circa seventy, right? They to me, this seems like two interesting things sort of going on here. One. 
it is a new franchise along with what the uh, Portland Trailblazers and the Cleveland Cavaliers in the league itself for the 70-71 season Buffalo is. Um, and it, it's two things. One, uh, they're also uh, launching at the same time. Uh, the NHL is dropping a team in, in uh, Buffalo uh, in the Sabres, right? So that's interesting. I, I'm wondering why that was that year. Was the, was the odd? The odd wasn't new, right? No, odd wasn't really odd wasn't new at all. <clears throat> in fact, it was coming up for uh, refurbishing and actually raising the roof to try to squeeze more people in. Uh, it was pretty much Buffalo, in essence, trying to go major league in a hurry on a couple of fronts. And it was very exciting, in essence, to be around at that point. And, you know, I was leaving high school, going on to college, and so very much caught up in the sports um seen um and also beginning this eva started to dabble and cover it to a certain extent uh but it's funny what you have is and i think one i think one of the cautionary tales the braves are among other things but one of the preeminent ones that they are is the power of good ownership and how good ownership can you know, cure a lot of ills. They can keep things on track when maybe a team isn't doing that well. And you almost had, in a sense, the juxtaposition of, of the extremes of it with the Sabres and the Braves. Sabres had solid, solid ownership in the Knox brothers. In fact, they probably should have gotten an NHL team a couple of years before, but they were passed over. They bided their time. Um, brought in really good organizational people, and they built from there. And they had incredible drafts. I mean, for some of your ha- hockey fans out there, I mean, the French Connection with Gilbert Perot, Rene Robert, Rick Martin, you have uh, Jim Schoenfeld on defense, Tim Orton, et cetera. I mean, it's just uh, incredible how they loaded that team up. What you had, <clears throat> unfortunately, with the Braves is the original ownership group pretty much bailed before the team even took the court. And so they reach out to a local businessman who really was new to this whole equation. And a lot of people hold him to fault. And I don't do as much, but that's Paul Snyder, who had made his fortune in frozen foods and this type of thing. And they pretty much, the city fathers and even the NBA reached out to him at the 11th hour and said, uh, can you help us out? I mean, the city's been awarded a team. Now we've got no ownership group because everybody else is gone. And Snyder, to his credit, stepped up. But Snyder hadn't really, number one, prepared for this. And number two, wasn't really a sports guy anyway. You know, unlike, say, the Knox brothers who had been hanging around hockey, uh, certainly the minor league team in Buffalo at that point. I mean, you know, they had paid their dues, so to speak. Snyder unfairly had to go zero to 60 is an owner very quickly. And I think what you had at that point was, unfortunately, despite the best intentions, um, a recipe for disaster. There was very little, there was a lack of patience. And when the team starts to get better, uh, which was still relatively quickly, but maybe not enough for Paul Snyder, uh, where they make uh, the playoffs three consecutive years starting their fourth year of existence, um, it wasn't ever good enough. And I think sometimes you, if you're the key to, I think, again, I think quality ownership sometimes is when you know enough about what's going on and maybe things aren't going your way 
you know, on the court or on the ice or whatever it may be, but you believe in, <clears throat> excuse me, you believe in the system. In a sense, you're going to, okay, we're going in this direction. We're going to stick with it. And when I first started Buffalo home of the Braves, I had kind of forgotten this, even though I was at one of the games when this had happened, um, the Braves were destined to have a front line of Bob McAdoo, Adrian Dantley, and Moses Malone. And as McAdoo pointed out to me, he's one of the first guys they interviewed for this book. He said, uh, you think if they stuck, kept that front line together, I think we would have done some damage. I think we would have won some titles, um, certainly some divisions. But because everything's a scramble and because nobody's quite sure how the game is played out, whatever's being done right now isn't good enough. Um, Moses Malone lasted in a Buffalo Braves uniform for all of two and a half weeks or less. And then he was peddled. Soon after that, the season after McAdoo is peddled. Adrian Dantley wins a Rookie of the Year uh, honor in 1977, I believe, and soon he's run out of town. All because there's a franticness among ownership. Uh, we're good, but we got to get better. we got to do something quick. Let's do something. And uh, the revolving door with the Braves was just incredible. And if you just kind of look back at, you know, some of the guys that they had, if they just would have hung on to them for a little bit and just kind of seen what happens, I think it would have turned out much, much better. Well, I, I want to get into a couple of those things in a second, but I, I, I still can't wrap my mind around, um, and I'm not a native, right? So about uh, two major league sports franchises being dropped into Buffalo. Um, uh, I, I got to think some of it had to do maybe with uh, the frenetic pace and challenge of both the ABA and the rumblings of the WHA perhaps. And, uh, but I, I, it, it maybe, maybe, maybe not. But I'm also trying to figure out um, why Buffalo, right, versus say other markets. Uh, well, and, at that point in time, Buffalo was. Yeah, was it the Bills you know, and, and, and their their growth from the in the old AFL coming into the NFL into their own, perhaps. Yeah, but the, but the, I think it was more that Buffalo at that point was, you know, as recently as what the mid '60s. And this is how much our country changes sometimes demographics. Um, Buffalo, I believe, was the 10th or 11th largest media market and population base in the country. And now a media market, I believe it's in the 40s. And so it's, you know, you can look at it from point of view today and go, Ooh, that's a small market. What are they doing with all those teams in there? But on the other hand, they had the odd is getting renovated. At that point in time, the steel bills were still going. You still had two newspapers, et cetera. And I think part of it is, too, one reason we see it, we see it in all sports. I think, Tim, I think you would agree that, you know, quick way to turn, make, make a dime, so to speak, if your ownership of other teams is to let more teams in and charge them a franchise fee and, and go for it. And um, Buffalo, so during this point, and people don't quite realize it, and it kind of um, went to Toronto instead. But Buffalo came very close to having a major league baseball team. And, um, and one of the things I would give Snyder credit for, and we see it now in baseball, maybe less so maybe in other sports, but these kind of regional markets. And you had a um, major conundrum in a way that you had an international border between the U.S. and Canada uh, as part of a potential regional market. But Snyder started playing 10 15 games a season up in Toronto. 
I think you talk to Raptors fans now in Toronto, every now and then you talk to an old timer and they go, yeah, I got into this game because I was watching those Braves. I was watching McAdoo. I was watching Ernie D. And in some ways, you know, certainly Toronto's taken off in terms of population and demographics, but the seed for professional basketball was planted by the Braves playing up there. And one reason they're playing up there is Snyder's trying to, um, in a sense, make some money himself. He's trying to, you know, keep things going. And it's, it's kind of funny because I think if, um, if the Braves had stayed, and I must admit, I, I, I cringed the, the night the Cavaliers won. I felt, you know, good for the good folks of Cleveland and all that. But um, as you pointed out, Cleveland and Portland came in the same year. And with a little bit more foresight, a little bit more patience, I really believe Buffalo could still support an NBA team, especially if they're bringing in fans if they didn't have a team in Toronto. Well, also unmentioned, though, uh, partially the reason or the other part of the reason that they were playing in Toronto was the other thing I kind of want to dig into right now, which is this uh, problem with scheduling dates at the odd, right, with it seems to me. And, and OK, now I'm really curious about this. Right. So the Sabres and the Braves are both launched the same year in the odd. And you think the two major professional leagues, right, would have, if you will, first dibs on uh, on on the dates. But. Um, when it came to basketball and the Braves, that wasn't the case, now was it? No, Canisius, uh, um, in a sense, had dibs pretty much on a lot of the Saturday night um, dates, which now, from decades later, seems ludicrous. You know, how you have a team that seems to be so small time in a way as Canisius, um, what are they doing having these dates locked up at the premier sports facility in downtown Buffalo. But what people don't realize is well, this is before the big East takes off. This is before, you know, a sense, a lot of teams um, ended up in a lot of power conferences. And one of them, I wouldn't really call it a power conference, but it was a very, you know, good arrangement for the schools in it. And you had what they called the little three. And that was Canisius, Niagara and St. Bonaventure. And some people go, huh, that doesn't sound like much of anything. But at that point in time, this was a pretty big deal. Calvin Murphy had come out of Niagara. Uh, one of the Braves' big mistakes is not drafting him in their first draft. They went with a, a forward named John Hummer out of Princeton. And already, you know, that kind of turned the waters locally. I mean, you can't take the guy who started our, lo- you know, our local college and, and, but, you know, they decided he didn't have the goods to play in the NBA. But, of course, he did, uh, Hall of Fame. And then St. Bonaventure, too, what people don't realize is they had Bob Lanier. And if Bob Lanier doesn't hurt his knee, I forget, I forget which year here, but it's one of the years where UCLA's in the Final Four, et cetera. You talk to some of the old UCLA folks, and I think John Wooden even alluded to this at one point in an interview or made one of his books, the team they feared was St. Bonaventure with, with Lanier and the post. And so it was a very vibrant um, basketball community. And again, I think that's something that's kind of looked over. And a lot of those fans became Braves fans, even though they lost some because they didn't draft Calvin Murphy. Yeah, it's interesting. As you mentioned, too, it's also sort of that, um, you know, either by by uh, design or by luck, right? The idea of sort of this regionalization thing. How does, how did the, um, uh, so how did the 
Buffalo Braves fans kind of handle that, right? Because, you know, here you are, you've got, they're our team, but then they've got all these, you know, a sizable chunk of home games. I mean, maybe a quarter of the schedule, it seems, uh, being played up in Toronto. I mean, um, I don't know, it almost feels like uh, a second-class citizenship. Um, but did, did that either, did that prevent more fans from sort of locking into the Braves, or did it maybe endear them to maybe a greater geography of them? Um, Tim, I think maybe it was a little bit of both. You know, in doing Buffalo Home of the Braves, um, it was interesting because I talked to several Canadian fans, again, that watched the Braves at the old Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And again, love the style of play. They just, wow, this is pretty incredible. Um, I don't think it hurt, say, the walk-up gate or individual tickets that much back in Buffalo. I don't think there was that much antagonism or anger about it. Um, you know, it was, it was, say, 10 games, whatever. It, it's similar a little bit to what the Bills tried to do a couple of years ago with a handful of games and actually shows this life even more. But I think where it really hurt was season tickets, season ticket holders, because now you're kind of trying to reach out to the community, especially businesses, and you're saying, hey, help, you know, get on board. And then, you know, the Sabres are having no problems by that point in time selling uh, season tickets to the business community in Buffalo. Whereas my sense was it was more difficult for the Braves. Not only weren't they as, as successful, but as you just pointed out, well, hang on, how many games are they going to be in Toronto? Now, Toronto's not that far away. Toronto's maybe an hour and a half drive, maybe a little bit more now because the traffic's gotten worse. But um, so potentially for really super brave fans, it would make the drive up. I mean, one of the things I always find ironic when I go to Sabre games back in Buffalo and I go back home is, especially if they play, say, the Toronto Maple Leafs, third of the fans are Toronto fans. You know, they've come over the bridge of, you know, come across the Peace Bridge and they're cheering their team. And so um, I think the regional thing could have been handled a little bit better and made it kind of one big, you know, community, so to speak. <laughs> You're split between two countries that potentially could have worked. But I think my sense of it is season tickets, this is where it made people more reluctant to put down the added money for a season ticket and especially the business community, and that, in a sense, proved to be the escape clause later on and allowed the Braves to get out of town. Well, we, we're only talking about eight seasons or so in the uh, in the 70s, but in the beginning, right, the first couple of seasons, right, it seems like uh, nobody really expected much from the Braves, uh, which is to be expected when, when there's an expansion team. Uh, and I guess they didn't disappoint in that uh, first uh season or two maybe uh maybe you could describe a bit of sort of the formative years of the sort of getting uh you know in the league and adjusted and stuff the fans and all that kind of stuff and it, it's clear that uh, a couple of years later things become a lot more uh, congealed and it's uh, by the record and stuff but it seems like there's some uh, some interesting uh, bouts of futility uh in these first two oh, three seasons no very much and 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 again you know, we're talking about expectations with the fans and this type of thing. Um, you had futility, certainly over the first three years. And you had some, you know, not such, <laughs> some, you know, it's a typical expansion team start. It's not a very good, uh, you know, talent pool, except for maybe Bob Kaufman, who really endeared himself to, um, you know, was a good player and endeared himself to the local populace. It was, 
a little bit of a struggle. They're trying to figure out who's going to be the center, how more Smith's in, the backcourt's a bit of a mess. Um, you know, things are so kind of chaotic and the door's wide open that you had a player like Randy Smith, who becomes a real fan favorite, who is coming out of Buff State, not the University of Buffalo, but Buff State College, and uh, makes the team. And coming out of Buff State, Randy Smith was known more as a soccer player. Yet he was very fast. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of competition. He ends up winning a spot, you know, on the fledgling Braves. But um, I don't know, in retrospect, if there was the patience sometimes. You know, things take off relatively quickly. But, you know, the roots maybe in terms of fan following maybe weren't as deep as they could have been. And the reason I bring that up is, again, you had a community, a population that knew basketball. And that was pretty much from the little three. They've had success with St. Bonaventure and Niagara and Canisius. And in a sense, they knew good basketball. And in a sense, the first couple of years weren't good basketball. And so, therefore, you don't have, in a sense, again, the season tickets and things taking off that way. Um, it was a, sometimes a comedy of errors. I mean, uh, you know, the big blowouts, you know, records of like 20 and 60 for the year and such. But, again, that's an expansion team to be expected. But maybe the populace was expecting a little bit more, and certainly ownership was, too. Why do you think Dolph Shays was uh, chosen as the first coach? Because he had uh, he had obviously uh, coached a great player, right? Uh, but had coached uh, the uh, 76ers for a while. I, I think he won Coach of the Year honors in 66 or 67. I forget. And uh, but then he was like he was I thought he was like the sort of head of officiating or something for a bunch of years. He, he had really not been a coach really for all that much. Not not only a good length of time, but then, you know, had kind of taken a, a leave of it. Uh, I'm just curious as to why he was the guy circled on the uh, on the blotter. Because I think he was a name, Tim. You know, he was a name that kind of, you know, reverberates through, in a sense, Western New York, certainly Central New York. And um, and I agree with you. I don't think he was maybe necessarily the the right basketball mastermind at this point in time. Um, but this is where, again, the lack of a plan or the lack of insight from ownership on down, from the front office on down, it's a little problematic. I mean, you know, they had a good GM, but let's bring in a coach who, uh, in essence, is more of a name as opposed to, at this point in time, a coach. And then you look again, I'm, I don't mean to compare them all the time with the Sabres, but you look at the Sabres and they've brought in a very successful coach slash GM and Punch Imlach, who had had great success up in Toronto. Again, that regional thing working for the Sabres advantage at that point in time. So I think it was um, somewhat the fact, not quite sure what to do, but I'll give them credit. You know, they, they learn as quickly um, but it's almost like, and I'm talking about the front office, the Braves front office, it's almost they, they got too accelerated or too revved up because they did turn things around relatively quickly for an expansion team. I mean, by the fourth year, they're, they're, they're in there. They're, they're going toe-to-toe with some of the best teams you know, in, in the game. And yet, you know, they're making the playoffs by season four. They're back in there at season five, six. But everything is too frantic at that point. You know, it's almost like 
the residue or the bad memory of the first three seasons, especially the first two, uh, was resonating too much with ownership in the front office. Well, you mentioned uh, the arrival of, of uh, Dr. Jack Ramsey, right? So it, it's clear that, uh, well, it seems to be that uh, he was, uh, uh, I don't know if he was the reason, right? but uh, lots of good things seem to start to happen, not necessarily immediately, but relatively soon into his tenure, including not only his coaching capabilities, right, the Hall of Famer he, but also a bunch of uh, uh, well-regarded uh, talent, um, some of which we talked about, but maybe we should d- dig a little deeper here, right? No, maybe first and foremost is uh, Mr. McAdoo from uh, from North Carolina. Very much. And I think, um, you know, McAdoo certainly is, I guess, probably, you know, with Dr. Jack, the main reasons things start to turn around, you know, certainly by uh, – certainly making the playoffs by season four. And again, I think there was, um, and Randy Smith's getting better at this point. Some of the supporting cast is getting better, but I don't think anybody quite expected McAdoo to be the force that he was, say, coming out of college. I mean, he played at North Carolina. He was a fine player, great player in North Carolina. But again, there was a bit, uh, there was a major disagreement about where he should play. And um, seemed to be a natural forward, was not the biggest, you know, is tall, but certainly not the bulkiest guy in the world. And you got to think back, this is uh, the time in the NBA where, what, Will Chamberlain's, you know, still going strong, even though he was still soon coming <clears throat> down. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is becoming a force. Dave, Dave Collins um, with the Celtics, et cetera. And it was pretty much out of necessity. They put McAdoo at the center position, and lo and behold, he takes off. And he changed the game, I think, a little bit, Tim. Um, you know, the NBA is much less of a, oh, a post-up game now. You know, get the big guy down the block, so let's feed him the ball, and he'll be like uh, Kareem and do the sky hook, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Braves didn't really have that. In a sense, they had about three sometimes four forwards at a time that could all shoot, you know, with Garford and Jack Barron's is for sure. And McAdoo sometimes would step out from the paint and hit the jumper from far away. You know, it kind of blows your mind a little bit. Some of the point totals he would have put up if, in a sense, the game had caught up with him and, you know, three-point shot and all that type of thing. And he put up incredible numbers. I mean, I was at a game where, he, he did, I think, 50 or 52. And, he, and again, you know, that's been superseded and, you know, subsequent years and such. But for a guy where you weren't quite sure what his position was going to be, and now he's putting up these type of point totals, was really pretty astounding. And it changed, and now he changed the franchise. I would argue it started to change the league. And um, it became much more of a fast-paced um, almost running game. Who's ever open, take the shot. We're all confident you can hit the shot. Um, as McAdoo told me at one point, Randy Smith too, he said, when we were going, um, five guys on the floor, anybody could hit that outside shot. And some of the nicknames they started to get were amazing, like the guns of Navarone and things like that. I think the only thing I can compare it to a little bit in recent memory, uh, is it's kind of the way the Phoenix Suns played for a while when Nash was, you know, still playing for them and things like that. Um, there wasn't any concern about <laughs> any shot clock or 
you know, slowing things down. It was like, away we go. And you had uh, a number of fast players on it, but more importantly, you had a number of uh, superbly offensively skilled players. All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you, while we do so, that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, there was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball, but obviously the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball. And it remains to this day, uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, great legendary years at club play as well as national team play uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL, with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That too uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate your doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. I guess, too, not to be overlooked is um, probably a, a surprise, a diamond in the rough, is Ernie DiGregorio, right? Reading NBA Rookie of the Year the season before. Um, it's it's clear that there's some real talent there. And and I also wonder, too, and I'm, I'm this is now a guess only only informed by our previous uh, excursions into the uh, the old ABA, that perhaps there was a bit of a uh, a push on the NBA, right, The to kind of make things a little bit more exciting because the ABA was certainly that, right? Run and gun, fast, sure. you know, three-point shots, all that kind of stuff. And you'll have, certainly, as John Y. Brown moves into ownership with the Braves, you'll have even a growing ABA factor with the Braves, for good and bad, I would say. But, um, you know, the ABA was dynamic, was exciting. And, uh, again, it was 
push the ball and, and go. And I think, uh, and it's funny how things kind of work out serendipity a little bit. Um, you know, you brought up Ernie DiGregorio, I think was a great guard. I think he would have, um, you know, you know, really had a fantastic career if he hadn't hurt his knee and if they had better ways to take care of knees at that point as a, you know, like in a sense, scoping it as opposed to, you know, straight ahead stitcher surgery type of thing. But, you know, the only way he ends up really on the Braves is he's coming out of Providence. Providence, I remember they were pretty good too. And uh, if Marvin Barnes, you know, they had Marvin Barnes, Kevin Staken, Ernie DiGregorio, if they stay a little bit more healthy, I think they would have maybe even given UCLA a run for their money uh, in, in a Final Four. But coming out of it, nobody was quite sure. Again, you had it's almost kind of the island of misfit toys. Nobody quite fits, and and especially in that old prototypical um, NBA setup that was there in the seventies. And you had, you know, the gripe against McAdoo was, uh, okay, he's got to play forward, right? He can't handle going against Kareem and that. Those guys every night would get all beat up. Um, if that was the criticism against McAdoo. The criticism against Ernie Di Gregorio was he's too short. And that seemed to be the prevailing opinion until the U.S. team plays the old Soviet Union team, I believe at Madison Square Garden, and Ernie D is the star of that game. And that raises his draft, um, in a sense, of, you know, the way he's going to be drafted, he goes much higher in the draft. And Buffalo is, again, looking for stars, looking for gate attractions, and they bring him in. And it's it's interesting because maybe, you know, maybe there's more better guys, maybe Doug Collins, et cetera, um, coming out of that era that are going to have maybe longer, more typical professional careers. But coming out of college, Ernie D was like lightning in a bottle. And you had, again, ownership looking to get, people through the turnstile so they signed him what was um uh let's talk about the stands for a second what, what was uh your memories and or others memories that you've learned in your uh research for putting this book together um of uh going to games like what, what was it like i mean how were they as uh well attended let's say as the uh as the sabers it seems like in the early days maybe not so much uh but i'm just wondering like what the uh, the vibe of a game was uh, at the odd, I mean, was it raucous? Was it, uh, you know, fun? Was it, uh, you know, uh, nondescript? I, I'm what? <laughs> well, for Tim, for big games, and now we're talking the playoff game, especially say against the Celtics. Um, I, I heard later that <clears throat> since Red Auerbach, this, you know, this was a team he kind of feared because he couldn't quite figure out you know, how they, how the Celtics are going to prepare for him, et cetera. And they had some, Amazing series. I mean, the Braves never won one, but several of them went down to very controversial finishes and such. And for those type of games, uh, the odd was rocking. And um, say more of a regular season game in December or January against, I don't know, you know, somebody, Atlanta Hawks, somebody just kind of passing through. No. And the thing is, that was a major difference between the Sabres and the and the Braves uh, almost every night, certainly after the Sabres got going with the sellout. And um, you couldn't say that necessarily about the Braves. But one of the things I love about or loved about the old odd in Buffalo, they tore it down a couple of years ago. And I just happened to be in town when they were tearing it down and ended up going by. And it 
kind of brought a tear to my eye a little bit, um, was it was a fun place to go to a game. Um, it was small. It was a bit of a band box. <clears throat> Probably at a top capacity set, maybe 14 and change, maybe 15. And that's with people packed up in the rafters. But one of the things that it surprised me in talking with, say, Bob McAdoo, Jack Marin, um, even Kaufman, Bob Kaufman, Gar Hurd, is all of them, uh, when I was researching Buffalo Home of the Braves, almost to a man, they remembered the odds so fondly. And, and some of it was the crowds. They loved it when they had a big crowd, like any athlete, things get cranked up. But Jack Marin uh, pointed out, he said, I don't know what it was about the light there or the floor or the way things are just kind of configured, you know, in relationship to the seat. But I love shooting there. Every shot I took at the old odd, I felt like was going in. And you're talking, you know, Jack Marin, the mad bomber, he's going to shoot a ton of shots. And, um, and, and, and that was echoed by a, a great many of, of the old braves. They just loved some of the ambiance. You know, when it was a big game, I mean, not so much when it's dead a winter and it's only half filled, but they love shooting there. And again, it was very difficult for them to describe a little bit, but um, McAdoo said at one point, he said, you know, you can put me in there blindfolded, give me a ball, take off the blindfold. I don't care where I am on the court. I'd hit it if I was back there again. And so there's a real, you know, um, familiarity, but also an extreme, um, almost, I don't know, superstition, supernatural fondness. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, and uh, I, I can imagine what sort of that – and also, you know, it was a relatively – you know, you said earlier it was a, a bigger market than than it is now, but I, I do suspect that, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just not the glamour, you know, outpost of like a Los Angeles or a New York, right? Um, no, no, not but, at all. You know, again, that's it's special, right? It's also their team – it's, uh, it's, you know, and, and the people can sort of uh, alight to it a lot, uh, a lot more easily. It's a little bit more accessible, that kind of stuff. Well, you know, so looking at the middle part of their sort of their lives, right, 73 through what, 76 or so, the Jack uh, Ramsey years, let's call them, or McAdoo years too. Um, you know, this is a team that, uh, you know, um, was regularly in, you know, for good three seasons in the playoff mix, right? Uh, they even won a, a, a round uh, in the 75-76 season, um, it seems like that the team was somewhat solidified and and I guess doing fairly well enough to be, you know, near the average for ABA franchises in terms of the uh, the turnstiles. I I'd imagine that uh, it, it seemed like they were relatively, uh, you know, uh, I won't say flush, right? The NBA certainly had its problems uh, team-wise uh, in, you know, in the league. I think I, the, I think in the 70s, uh, maybe half the NBA teams weren't making money, but I think Buffalo was not among that sorry lot, though, right? I think they were doing pretty much okay. Yeah, they were doing they were doing fine once they got into the playoffs for the, you know, as you say, the Jack Ramsey era and made the playoffs three straight times and pushed the Celtics several times to the limit, gave them all they could handle. But again, now we're kind of back to, you know, in a sense, the problem potentially with ownership. One is good, good enough. And um, it's funny because, again, kind of comparing the two franchises going out at the same time, the Sabres are doing very well, too. I mean, you could go 
you know, both teams are making the playoffs come spring. You could go to a playoff game, basketball or hockey, any night of the week. You know, that, that's how much both of the teams were doing well. Um, the Sabres arguably did a little bit better. Uh, they made the final uh, one year, lost to Philadelphia, lost to the Flyers. But they didn't win it all either. Yet, it didn't seem to create kind of the angst or gnashing of teeth that it did over on the Braves' side. Um, okay, you've pushed the Celtics. You've given them all they can handle. Um, you lose kind of a, almost a little bit in a controversial way to the Bullets. Um, but look at this team you have. Why don't you kind of keep it together and figure out what you've got to fill? And if anything, we're still kind of back to how frantic I think things were in the first couple of years. In a sense, I think you're absolutely right, Tim. Things have solidified, both in terms of maybe the fans, both in terms of, say, money. But unfortunately, I don't think things had solidified, um, in, again, in the front office. It was always, okay, what, what can we do now? Well, we got to do something quick. Oh, we need this. We need that. And things as a result started slipping through their hands. Um, McAdoo, for example, was traded on Christmas, um, I believe, what, 76, 77, right around there. And he finds out about it. He's he shopping. Toronto's back in play again. He's shopping, doing his Christmas shopping up at the Eaton Center in Toronto with Rand, Randy Smith, his good longtime friend. And, um, and this is well before cell phones and all, you know, all this. He finds out when he's being paged on the Eaton Center public address system in Toronto, Bob McAdoo, please report, or whatever. And he thinks something dastardly, you know, you know, something terrible has happened to his family or something. And he rushes off and um, then comes back and he's got this just stunned look on his face. And Smith goes, what's wrong? And McAdoo goes, I was traded to the Knicks in a very lopsided trade. It was pretty much for money you know, and a couple, you know, other folks. And there's started to be a real struggle within ownership at this point because Paul Snyder has kind of lost patience. And he brings in John Y. Brown, the former owner of the Kentucky Colonels. Here's our ABA connection. And if anything, with John Y. now involved, the, in a sense, the roster starts changing over even more so. Part of this was both co-owners at that point, Snyder and Brown, were kind of frantic to have a championship team. Part of this may be that they had gotten close, Snyder had gotten close against the Celtics and the Bullets. Part of it may be that the Sabres are still doing really, really well, so there's a fight locally on who's going to be the big dog in town. But I think also, too, um, John Y. Brown knew the ABA. So he starts bringing in a great deal of folks like that. And so that's, again, where you have these very strange snapshots in time where you have, and I was at one of those games where Moses Malone is playing center that allows Bob McAdoo to move over to forward. And you're just looking at this and just getting fleeting glimpses of it, maybe a quarter or two, you know, in a game because Malone has just shown up and you're going, whoa. You know, that's got real potential. And then Moses Malone says, you know, he's coming off the bench. And he says, I'm better than, you know, half these guys starting. I deserve to start. And for speaking out like that, he's traded. He's just like, going, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then it starts becoming a real revolving door, you know, whether it's Ernie DiGregorio, 
Bob McAdoo, um, Moses Malone for a fleeting second, whatever, you know, these very, you know, recognizable names in basketball and NBA history start leaving town so quickly. And it's mostly because I think the front office. How much do you think uh, was pressure on Snyder to kind of, you know, get out of town? Uh, You know, I I know that uh, looking back, it seems like uh, the uh, relationship, if you could even call it that, with the Sabres was, uh, I don't know, tenuous at best. And, um, you know, we kind of hinted at sort of the Canisius um, men's basketball situation, but we didn't talk about a guy named uh, Father Jim Dembski, right, who seems to be, I mean, it seemed to be like a truly open and public disdain for each other. He and, uh, uh, you know, between Dembski and uh, and Snyder, uh, I mean, almost to the point of hostility. Um, it just seems to me that Snyder had a bunch of outside forces kind of gnawed at him, too, let alone his desire to do something significant with the franchise in- internally. Yeah, I think that that could be that could be true, Tim. And I think I think deep down, I might be reading too much into it, is Paul Snyder wanted to have, he wanted to be the owner of, in a sense, the big dog in town, so to speak. And that, was, and that wasn't the Braves at that point in time. It was the Sabres, and probably continues to be the Sabres, because the Braves have left. But I don't think he can underestimate kind of how John Y. Brown stirred the pot, too. Because I think the Snyder by this point, and we're talking, well, 76, 77, we're kind of coming down to the end of the eight seasons. They're there. And then since talking with Paul Snyder and just looking back, you know, talking with others, yeah, I think he had lost some patience. And I think he was just, he was just wore out, <laughs> excuse me, from being an owner. So he kind of leaves things open to John Y. Brown and John Y. Brown starts really picking up the pace, not only shipping players like McAdoo out and barely hanging on to Moses Malone, much more for a cup of coffee. And then we end up building the crescendo. What we're building up to, I think it's one of the most bizarre things, certainly in NBA history and maybe in professional sports where you, you pretty much have John Y. Brown trading his entire team for another team as in the Boston Celtics. And, and, and it's just, it's all jumbled up. And somehow the Celtics, even though we've gotten this, you know, rosters are just pretty much being moved wholesale. The Celtics are able to hang on to the draft rights to this guy coming out of college named Larry Bird. Hmm, well, that would have been interesting if the Braves had been able to, you know, hang on or get the rights to Larry Bird. And, um, is just even the even the people who lived through it, and one of the most notable was Randy Smith, who will go on to be the MVP soon after this whole move and, uh, in a sense, franchise trade uh, in the in the NBA All Star Game. I remember talking with Randy, and unfortunately Randy's passed on, but and talking to him for Buffalo Home of the Braves, he just said it was crazy. He was getting paychecks from the Celtics, from the Braves. Oh, and kind of this new team, oh, the Clippers at one point. Well, I guess I'm going west with the Clippers. And I said, hang on, you're getting page. You were getting at one point paychecks from all those teams. And he said, yeah, you know what I did? As soon as I got one, I ran down to the bank as quick as I could and cashed it. <laughs> and that's how crazy it was. And so if the players that are involved, if their heads are spinning, 
you know, you can imagine what the fans are thinking and such. But, um, and if you look back at that franchise shift or, you know, trade, wholesale trade, pretty much the guy who helps pull it all together is a young attorney named David Stern will come, you know, be commissioner of the NBA soon. So it's, uh, it, it kind of boggles the mind that I, I really think the Braves are positioned to be one of the marquee teams of what the NBA was becoming. And I'm not talking the NBA with magic and bird and, you know, the subsequent talent that's coming in, how much that changed. And you got to remember, as you all know, Tim, the, I can still remember what the NBA finals often weren't even on live yeah, TV. Delay, you had to stay up after the 11 o'clock yeah, news. Late at night after, yeah. after your late local news. <laughs> and I told, my, I told my son that one time because it looked at me like I was making stuff up. But that's how low, you know, on the totem pole kind of the NBA was. And yet things are turning around. And yet one of the most interesting, maybe talented teams in the Braves wasn't allowed to kind of reap the net benefits. And that's why, you know, I've said before, I've written it too, that I, I truly believe that the Braves are such a star-crossed team and one of the most talented teams. But the NBA, and even the city of Buffalo to a certain extent, just kind of let them slip so, through their fingers. How did Brown get involved okay. in the first place? Was this sort of his, uh, his uh, final chance or his uh, – inevitable or his desire to have mm-hmm. an NBA franchise after having gone through the, uh, I guess the motions with the ABA. Yeah, very much so. I mean, he'd gone through the motions, but really Hannah kind of stepped up to the table and Snyder is, he's worn down. He's getting some, you know, he's gotten a fair amount of criticism at times. Um, as you, as you know, as we discussed, he still can't get his team off on a Saturday night date in the pretty much the only major arena in town. Uh, he's tried going to Toronto. He's been blasted for that. Um, I think Snyder was just wore out. So he sold 50% of the team to John Y. Brown. But that's kind of letting, you know, a very interesting character in and having him sit down at your dinner table. And before you knew it, It also seems like, and I'm wondering sort of the, and I, you know, the John Y. Brown story is is interesting for other things, and hopefully we'll get to explore that at some other, uh, at some other juncture, but it seems like, and again, I, this is my, my investigation, you probably have a better, a better read on it, Um do you think this was calculated? Uh, I mean, we'll get into the, the Celtics thing in a second, but, you know, um, I, I, it doesn't seem like it would be the, Given the fact that the uh, did it leak or was it leaked or was it specifically you know told that uh, you know in nineteen in the in June of seventy six you know the news breaks that the uh, the Braves are basically leaving town. Um, I I can't imagine if I've just bought fifty percent of a franchise uh, relatively you know uh, close to that uh, that that publication date that I'd want I want to let that uh, news sort of either slip out or 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 see the, you know, seep that out. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I don't think once John Y. Brown gets involved, I don't think he really had, let's just say, I don't think the Braves had much of a future in Buffalo at that point. Because all of a sudden you had, you know, whether it's Hollywood, Florida, or Dallas, or whatever it may be, um, some of the, the buzz is, well, we'll move them there. We'll move them here and there. And from what I understand, what I heard from the players, too, is um, 
John Roy Brown really, even though he owns half the team and is really kind of controlling things to a large extent, really wasn't making his home in Buffalo that much. I mean, he'd come and join the team and, and as Randy Smith said at one point, you know, John Y would catch up with it somewhere on the road and suddenly be, oh, there's a couple of new players that John Y knew from the ABA. Oh, they're part of the team now. Oh, what are they going to do? I don't know. We'll figure it out. And it, it really became catch by catch can. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I think you're very astute that naming John Y. Brown felt he kind of missed the first chance of the gold ring going around when the ABA folds and maybe he could have done something more with the colonels and that type of thing. This is now a second chance and he's gotten his controls on a team. I don't think he was going to keep them in Buffalo. And so suddenly, as you say, the news started springing up all over all well, the Braves can move here, the Braves can move there. And just think what that does to your season ticket base. What do you think that does to your fan base? All of a sudden yeah, you're going, exactly. am I going to invest in this team? And they're yeah, not exactly. going to be around. And for you to complete a set there, I, I, I think I, I juxtapose a, a piece of information. I think it was a Snyder who had uh, uh, essentially looked at uh, getting the team moved and uh, purchased and moved into uh, to Miami or suburban Miami. It fell through the uh, – the city uh, didn't uh, like that when they got wind of it. But then, you know, that that then once that's out in the public, right, you know, and a John Y. Brown coming in and buying 50 percent of the team, you know, in some respects, all bets are off. And I think that's what really looks like it would happen the last two seasons. I mean, you know, even if there was a promise or a renewed effort to keep the team in Buffalo, and it seems like uh, based on what I can tell, it was somewhat half hearted, um, you know, it, I got to think those last two seasons in Buffalo for the fans, for the players, certainly for the four coaches that spun through in the 77, 78 period, uh, you know, it was just, um, you know, waiting for either the ax to fall or some definition to finally happen. But uh, it almost felt like it was, it feels to me like it was almost like a slow motion death. uh, Before it was figured out as to what was Mm going to happen with this franchise. And, and I don't want to, I think, in, you know, it's certainly a slow motion death, death, but it had a couple spikes that unfortunately went the, the wrong way for the Braves and they, their fans are looking to keep them in town. And one of them, it was in the last year and the, the season's hardly begun. And they had wholesale changes and pretty much they've built the team around Tiny Archibald, who's come in as the guard. And they've got some big men. That's when Nader, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting team, uh, but it all evolves around Archibald and, and how Archibald and somewhat Randy Smith are going to be this backcourt and they're going to, again, play fast and et cetera. And Archibald gets hurt, you know, before the season really get, has a chance to get going. And, and John Y. Brown was the designer of this, you know, this team, so to speak. And Cotton Fitzsimmons is the coach and seems to have some potential. Is it a championship team? Maybe not, but it, it's going to be entertaining. Also, at this point in time, the, the Braves are doing about every type of promotion you can do. They're having Elvis night. They're having spaghetti night. They're having you know, any type of thing you've ever seen. They're, every night's like some kind of special night. But when Archibald gets hurt and he hurts his knee and gets um, pretty much carried off the floor, the season was done at that point. And, and I think everybody knew it from ownership down the front office, certainly to the fans. And again, now we're back to how many times around the block, how much patience does ownership have? And 
from what I heard from the players, it was uh, once Archibald was hurt, John Y. Brown pretty much said enough, you know, in a sense, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do radical things, radical things like completely trading the whole team for another team. And, uh, and that became, maybe, we, maybe we can, maybe we could sort of circle on that. So let's maybe, uh, you know, cause that's a, a, a natural uh, sort of ending point for all of this, right. Um, to the best of your ability, uh, can you walk us through a little bit about how, uh, Brown, uh, essentially does this swap with the Celtics and then sets the, uh, the stage for the team eventually going to San Diego and becoming the Clippers. Right. Well, a lot of it's kind of out there in the ether at this point in time. And all I can tell you is what the players told me in putting together Buffalo home of the Braves. And that's in a sense that, Ownership in Buffalo, whether it's Snyder or certainly not John Y. Brown, have lost patience. And they're looking in a sense to radical things. So in a sense, it was pretty much put out there. Let's put trade an entire team. Can we do that? Can we trade the entire team for the Braves, for the Celtics? So kind of the old Celtics kind of become the Braves. Some people get caught in the middle like Randy Smith. Um, And, and then what tops it off is you're not just kind of switching the Buffalo team with the Boston team and they're kind of going to their respective cities now. What puts it, in a sense, uh, the last twist is, oh, the team that was the Braves that now became the new Celtics are going to go out west and become the Clippers. And I don't know if that could happen today. But again, we're we're kind of back in the, Wild West days of the NBA, and, and maybe this is an ABA influence or something, but um, that's pretty much the way it shook out. And the, the players were, for a stretch, as much um, clueless as certainly the fans were. And I think it created a – the city of Buffalo had the opportunity, and I think they regret it to this day, to, to in essence, take – the Braves leaving to court. Um, not enough season tickets had been sold, and so the Braves could get out of their lease, and so therefore this um, franchise swap begins with the Celtics. But you still could have fought it in court. You know, you could have really made some obstacles and made it much more difficult for, you know, one of your professional teams to leave. And I think if it would, anything would have happened like this today, it had been in court. <laughs> for sure. Um, but it just seemed to, um, by that point, unfortunately for a good chunk of the government, city government in Buffalo, and maybe even some of the fan base, it was almost good riddance. And um, I don't think they quite realized, certainly the city government, even some of the fans realized what had, what had been lost until maybe four or five, ten years later. And again, it takes little things like Cleveland winning the NBA championship and you go, Oh yeah, Braves came in the same year with that. And then things like that to kind of give it that nudge. And so um, I think the whole franchise swap really muddied the waters and just made whether it was city fathers or maybe a regular fans just say, okay, I've had it. I, I don't even know who's on this team anymore, let alone what they are anymore. 
And so, yeah, I think that's interesting. This, this guy Irv Levin, who is uh, who is the uh, the part owner of the uh, or the owner of the Boston Celtics, he was a film producer. Uh, the, to live and die in L.A. in 1985, uh, soundtrack by Wang Chung. That's all I remember. But uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the, essentially, I, it's I guess he, I, my understanding is that he wanted to, to have an NBA franchise, but on the West Coast, and this was sort of the mechanism by which he and some others, and, and knowing John Y. Brown was looking to kind of get out of, uh, you know, the Buffalo situation. So it's an interesting and very, very curious one. And, I, you know, maybe that's a good conversation sometime for, for David Stern, he being sort of the young uh, uh, go-getter in the uh, NBA organization that helped sort of broker this thing. But if you think about it, too, it's also uh, a bit of, I'm sure, a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, whiteboarding at the NBA offices, right, to uh, expand uh, further into the West Coast at the time. Uh, to maybe give some uh, more, uh, you know, natural geographic rivalries with, say, the uh, the Lakers or the uh, the uh, Golden State Warriors and those kinds of, you know, sort of expand, if you will, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, markets and, and television and all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to give them too much credit, but uh, it seems like it uh, it was there was a bit of a thought in uh, in in making that swap sort of happen. Um, all right, so let me ask you this: um, uh, What uh, if any? Uh, memories and or legacy or recognition uh, have you been able to divine from uh, the people that you interview for this book, your memories, your just, you know, general uh, internet trolling on a, on a da- daily basis, uh, either the Toronto Raptors with that sort of natural geographic re- uh, 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 relationship or uh, today's modern version of the LA Clippers. Uh, is there any sort of acknowledgement or embrace or, or not of the Braves? Mm, not really. I think it's kind of reluctant at times. And, uh, and, it, and that's what makes it kind of eerie in some ways, Tim, is that you could have this franchise granted. They are only around eight seasons, but again, three rookies of the year, MVP, hall of fame coach. And yet they just all, you know, it all kind of disappeared. And um, I still remember talking with McAdoo, I believe he was on the Jim Rome show or something. And um, and Jim Rome kind of started the interview with, well, that must have been really tough being in Buffalo. I, I guess you guys weren't very good or anything like that. And McAdoo's just looking at him like he's crazy going, no, we were real good. We were really close to women at all. And yet, you know, people say McAdoo these days. I mean, what, we just had a thing recently about McAdoo talking to Carmelo Anthony about, you know, Carmelo coming off the bench, uh, Houston, and how McAdoo did it successfully for, you know, in L.A. And everybody just kind of, you know, it's almost like McAdoo's now known as uh, an L.A. Laker. You know, Ernie D is almost known as much for his success as Providence than as his success in Buffalo. Um, it drove some of them a little crazy. Um, Randy Smith, unfortunately, passed on a couple of years ago, um, but he was very proud, among others, to be a Buffalo Brave, and yet he was telling me at one point, I'm known as a Clipper now, and I, you know, I was really a Brave. And so um, it's eerie how in this day and age, and maybe again, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a harbinger of things to come, how quickly a team can disappear and how quickly a real good team can disappear and how even the good players, the great players from it are kind of remembered in a different light because that team doesn't exist anymore. 
Yeah, uh, and you know, it, but it kind of does, right? I mean, the Clippers uh, have a direct lineage, right? To they they uh, were birthed, if you will, from this Braves franchise. And you could again, you, you kind of we kind of alluded to it earlier. I mean, the fans of Toronto today with the Raptors can uh, owe a little bit, I think, of uh, their franchise to you know the uh, the little uh, beginnings of interest and and regionality, I guess, of of what the Braves started in the seventies. And and that's so you know and it's again that's sort of another reason why we kind of do these shows because you know as, as these memories sort of fade and and as people pass um, you know I I think it's really important to sort of remember and we this is why we also try to uh, you know bend over backwards to find you know original practitioners uh, as well because some of these oral histories if you will are you know important things because they can fade away in memory and i you know especially now with the uh, the LA Clippers right being this uh, i guess i guess the last major nba franchise uh, purchase right for you know an ungodly sum with Steve Ballmer and friends um you know it's it's interesting i mean you just look back to what the the, the somewhat humble beginnings of what that franchise uh, was and i you know it's interesting to go back and sort of remember how this thing came about in the first place i mean there's a whole generation of kids you know you young whippersnappers out there right you know think that you know the la clippers were always in los angeles and uh you know it's it's clearly not the case and at some point we'll talk about the san diego version of that um but it, it's all, it's all part of the history i'm just i'm i'm constantly fascinated not only about sort of the existence and and what transpired when these teams were around but I'm also very um, interested slash concerned about how uh, today's uh, successors or, um, you know, next generations of these franchises or ones that don't exist anymore, how they are uh, either uh, remembered and embraced by what currently exists today or, frankly and sadly, more often not. Uh, I've seen it in mm-hmm. soccer. We've seen it in uh, some of the uh, football franchises of the past, we've seen it. You know, it's almost like uh, in some cases there's almost a uh, uh, a willful ignorance or a desire to not be reminded of uh, some of the times when things weren't so great. And I don't, you know, I today's NBA may not want to remember. It seems, uh, you know, what was going on in Buffalo back in the '70s. Yet, you know, there's some some really compelling reasons as to why they should. I think. And you mentioned a whole bunch of them. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the things we've tried to do, there's been some back in Buffalo, some local groups either trying to raise a banner to the Braves and, you know, where the Sabres play now, the new arena. I'd love to see a statue probably to Randy Smith, um, you know, somewhere around downtown Buffalo. But, you know, every now and then when I get kind of maybe discouraged about it or bummed out about how things can disappear, something will happen, you know, just kind of give you this odd sense of hope, Tim. And I think it was, uh, it was a couple of years ago, the old Buffalo Braves jersey was one of the biggest sellers among, say, vintage NBA you know, uniforms. And I was in Buffalo, what, I was up there maybe a couple of years ago, and there was a guy, um, T-shirt shop, on Elmwood Avenue, one of the main drags in Buffalo, and I'm just walking around. And I walk in, and um, he's got grave shirts. And I was just, whoa. I was like a god. And I got talking with him, and he, and he said, I can't keep these in stock. And that just kind of made me feel really good in a weird way, that you know, even though they maybe deserved better, 
you know, on a lot of fronts, you know, the memory of Bob McAdoo, Randy Smith, Ernie Gregorio, Dr. Jack, you know, is still in an odd way being passed along. And that gives me some sense. Well, Tim, I do appreciate this is a, a, a great uh, uh, remembrance of a team that, uh, you know, was uh, very uh, essential and uh, and and a big part of the NBA during the 1970s, a very interesting and transitional decade uh, for that league. Why don't you uh, take this opportunity to give us some uh, some promotional love? Now, this book uh, is not in print anymore, is it? And and maybe some reasons as to why and maybe how it could become again? Well, I think it's going to be brought back out. I, I People can find Buffalo Home of the Braves, <clears throat> excuse me, on Amazon. And um, there's different outlets that are still carrying it. And one of the things that it wasn't, um, actually my brother Chris was the major publisher with it, uh, with his uh, Sun Bear Press out of, out of Michigan, Northern Michigan. And one of the things he did very well was there's so many photographs and there's so many, uh, you know, even the old, you know, the way the uniforms changed, the old uh, player cards, he made sure all of it was in here. And it's so, it's kind of a time machine for people that are either interested in it or even knew the breaks. And it's been kind of heartening for people that um, have picked up the book and just start flipping through it. And uh, yeah, I think it's got well over like 225 photographs, all this stuff. And they just go, I feel like I'm going back in time. I feel like I'm back there. And the other thing we did is one of my first jobs out of college as I worked at the morning paper in Buffalo and um, there was a very esteemed uh, sports columnist there, Phil Arnalo, who I'd read growing up and then got to work right alongside and he ended up being a you know, prince of a guy. You know, that's always a disappointment when you've been kind of reading somebody, but he gets to meet him. You go, I don't know, but there was no letdown on that at all. And what we've done is taken a, a, a couple of some of Phil's columns uh, from the old Courier Express and run them in a sense, kind of along the edges of, uh, you know, some of the pages and, uh, and certainly his column about the Braves leaving the epilogue. Um, it, it's just, um, it's, it's just, it's just amazing. It's so one of the fitting things. And, uh, you know, the last couple lines are John Brown's game plan was a perfect one for three months. He drove everybody batty. Uh, with uh, uh, his courting of city after city to the point where everybody had him and the Braves uh, up to up to here. Then he pulled off the stupendous deal with the Celtics, and nobody as much hollered foul. Nobody cared where he went as long as he went, and they got him out of and they got him out of their hair. Yes, sir. Brown's game plan worked to perfection, and unfortunately, it did. And uh, I think the deserving city lost the team that they really treasured. All right. So are we breaking news here that you may uh, indeed figure out a way to reissue this book and a new printing? Well, I think so. I think we will. But, yeah. Folks can, folks can find it. But yes, I'd love to re-release this book. This book's near and dear to me. And, uh, and I always love the cover, too. The cover's Randy Smith going up for a shot. And frankly, some days when I look at this cover, I go, that would make a great statue probably on corner of Maine and Chippewa or something in Buffalo, and it's, it's deservedly so.
All right, fun times in uh, in Buffalo, New York. Uh, certainly in the 70s, it was at the Memorial Auditorium, known as the Odd. And uh, we appreciate Tim Wendell uh, going back into time with us to talk about the Braves uh, in the NBA during the uh, 1970s. And uh, it's a, you know, again, as uh, as time marches on, as the, uh, the franchise known as the Clippers, uh, you know, continues to kind of move uh, up the charts, so to speak, and uh, sort of, uh, gain uh, continued uh, love from the fans, uh, the basketball fans of Los Angeles versus, say, the Lakers uh, and their you know longtime dominance. Uh, I, uh, a step back or two is always interesting uh, to know sort of how they got to what they are today. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the Clippers, of course, in San Diego. But before that, the actual start of the franchise known as the Buffalo Braves, hopefully a little a little cool uh, set of uh, information for you as a either as a Clippers fan or just as a, as a fan of pro basketball and the NBA uh, for that matter. Uh, the book, again, uh, is called Buffalo, Home of the Braves. Uh, it's a great book. It's uh, it's uh, it's more coffee table like uh, than it is uh, uh, written. Uh, lots of great photography in there. A lot of good interviews. And uh, it is published by Sunbear Press. Uh, came out about 10 years ago. Uh, and I do not believe it is uh, in print, but you can find it uh, out there. It's certainly available on Amazon. We have a link to it uh, there on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search up episode number 89. Uh, you will find uh, all kinds of interesting stuff about this episode. Uh, some Buffalo Braves uh, photography there and, of course, a link to the book. And by buying the book through that link, you will be giving us some love to and we appreciate that. That helps us keep our lights on, et cetera, uh, as we strive to get more of these uh, great episodes out to you uh, through the uh, magic of the interwebs. And um, hopefully we'll be able to maybe get some uh, impetus behind or some uh, some uh, uh, rallying around uh, maybe a reissue of this book, maybe with a couple of updates and stuff. So let's try to do that for Tim uh, and for uh, for us. And again, uh, by all means, go to goodseatsstillavailable.com and uh, click on those links, any of those links, frankly, uh, to Amazon or other places or for the other media that we uh, we hint and talk about here. Uh, and we appreciate you doing so. And once you're there and while you're there, why don't you, you know, stay around for a little while and check out some of our other stuff. We've got an email newsletter that you can sign up for. You can uh, click on the link and just send us an email. Or if you want to do that directly, you can do that at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, of course, you'll find all of our social links there. Uh, on Facebook, there's a page devoted to us. They are uh, our spot there on um, Instagram. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us there. On uh, Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, that's our handle for that. Uh, and you will also uh, find, um, oh gosh, I don't know, a whole bunch of other sort of uh, fun things. Uh, we um, uh, love the fact that uh, you uh, uh, communicate with us on uh, on social media and email. We certainly like to take your requests, whatever, uh, by all means. And uh, we also want to thank, of course, uh, our friend, uh, Dr. Jerry Payne. Uh, technically, he is a doctor. I've actually seen pictures of, uh, of a... Uh, uh, of his certificate of authenticity, shall we say. So I'm not sure what he's qualified to actually do doctor wise. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I would, uh, you know, uh, get my appendix removed uh, from Jerry. Not that uh, he wouldn't uh, give it a good shot, but uh, uh, we do know that uh, he is uh, he's got a, a doctorate in something. And, um, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly what that is. Uh, but uh, when it comes to podcasting, uh, he is uh, the doctor of love when it comes to putting our pieces together, uh, making us sound somewhat decent, somewhat nice, somewhat smooth, 
Uh, and uh, we appreciate his efforts each and every week, uh, despite uh, perhaps his uh, disdain for doing so. We appreciate him doing it. And uh, Podfly Productions is the firm that he works with. And again, if you if you are interested in podcasting in any way, shape, or form, uh, I cannot think of a better uh a place to go to learn and or uh, be helped by when it comes to production or editing and all that kind of stuff. Then Podfly Productions, you go to podfly.net, check them out. And uh, please, of course, tell them that uh, your pal Tim from Good Seats Still Available sent you uh, and they will treat you like royalty like they do me. All right. I'm done here for this week. I appreciate your listening. And uh, until next week, we'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.